Thanks for reading, Catherine. Well, uh, what a great passage. What an intriguing passage. What a, a terrible passage. Well, <laughs> we all know the feeling. We jump in the car, we're heading off on holidays, and your mind starts racing. You get in, did I forget something? What did I forget? I must have forgotten something. Phone chargers are a classic Hesford example. We always forget our phone charger for some reason. Uh, and socks. I mean, I'm not going to forget my pants, I'm not going to forget my shoes, but I forget my socks. Or if it's for a complicated project, you might use a, like a checklist. Think about something like a house. You know, did I get a, a designer plan? Did I get bank loans? Uh, did I get DA approval? What are we missing? What about God's approval? Did we get approval from God? Did we bring it before the Lord? Did we pray about it? And I'm sure you know that feeling. You get halfway through something and you're like, I didn't pray about it. Well, that's exactly what's happening in today's passage. That's exactly what happens in the story. Israel goes to war without asking God, and we see how it all flows on from that point. So let's uh, turn to the passage. Firstly, setting out without God, verses 1 to 9. Let's jump in. Verse 1 says, Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. It's a new chapter in Kings, and so we have a new king, uh, and this time it's Ahab's next son, Joram. And the verse gives us uh, a little summary of his life in God's eyes. It says, He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like his father and his mother, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. And so a a summary of uh, Joram's life would be something like he had a foot in each camp. He wasn't as bad as Jezebel and Ahab, his parents. He did remove the pillar. Uh, What a grand gesture to Yahweh. I'll remove the pillar to Baal. But look at what verse 3 says. It continues, Nevertheless, Joram clung to the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Nevertheless, we're told, (laughs) he didn't turn away from his other sins. The the idolatry that was still in the land remained. The prophets to Baal still remained. The pillars and altars to all the other pagan gods still remain. And chapter 3 really is a a tale of what it is to have a foot in each camp. Two bob each way, uh, hedging your bets, as we say, uh, against God and other gods. And as you might guess, it doesn't go well. It's a cautionary tale. Well, you can't understand uh, the story unless you know a little bit of the tension between uh, the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. So let me quickly uh, fill you in. Uh, Verse 1 said, Joram became king over Israel in Samaria uh, during the 18th year of Judah, King Jehoshaphat. So see here, it's telling you the relationship between these two kings. Uh, And there's Israel uh, and then there's uh, uh, Judah, two kingdoms, two kings. And so I've got a bit of a diagram to help you remember. Obviously, this is a map. Um, Oh, the lines are missing. Oh, well. Look, so the top part, the top half is Israel, and the bottom part is uh, Judah. There's a northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Uh, It's a bit confusing. The word Israel can refer to the whole thing or just to the the top part, but you can usually work out what it's saying. Uh, And what's important is where it goes. If we can get the next slide, is the the northern kingdom is, is wiped out. That they stray so far from God, uh, they, are, they, they are ended. But the, the southern kingdom, Judah, is where Jesus uh, is born from. They continue on. Uh, and so that is the significance. And so there's this uh, 
tension between these two kingdoms playing out all through Kings, all through uh, much of the Old Testament. Uh, and that is that the, the northern kingdom strays from Yahweh and the southern kingdom remains true, has good kings, the northern kingdom has bad kings. Uh, and so that tension is playing out in this week's passage. Well, you can't have a story without a predicament, a problem, uh, a bad guy, uh, and so enters Moab and their god, Chemosh. Verses 4 to 6 introduce them. So I read verse 4. King Mesha of Moab was a sheep breeder. He used to pay the king of Israel um, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. And so the Moabites were a vassal state of Israel. They paid tribute to them, but they were sick of paying their tax. And so verse 5 says, The king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Cry havoc, let slip the dogs of war. Sound the alarm, assemble the troops to the battle stations. The Moabites are rebelling. Uh, If I can pause now for a little archaeological interlude... Uh, there, there was an amazing discovery made, uh, the Misha Steel, uh, and this little guy is quite the find. Uh, it's a stone tribute written by the king, the Moabite king in our story. He wrote this tribute to his god, Chemosh, um, and he's thanking his god for defeating uh, the Israelites, Yahweh's people. So it, it's an amazing find to have. It, it kind of parallels our passage today. It's the same story uh, told from the other side. Uh, and what's really interesting is when you compare it to the, the account in Second Kings, it's a bit like comparing the uh, Ukrainian and the Russian accounts of a war encounter. I'm sure you've been kind of half amused as you read how different they are. You know, the Ukrainian report says there was 10 tanks and they were totally destroyed. Uh, and the Russian report says something like, oh, no, you know, they just punctured a tire of a wheelbarrow. And, they, you know, we had to iron a couple of shirts, but it was no big deal. Anyway. What, what this account definitely does do is authenticate Scripture in its claims to historic authenticity. Both Scripture and uh, this Misha steel contain the same records, the same place names, the same people names. Yahweh is mentioned by name. I think it's very cool. And so we're not reading history, uh, fiction in the Old Testament. We're reading history. Uh, like the Gospel accounts, it's the same thing. They're, they're historic documents. And everyone needs to read these accounts and weigh them for themselves and determine, is Yahweh the true God? Is Yahweh loving and faithful to a thousand generations? But let's return to our story. Uh, As I said, Moab rebels and Israel responds. So down at verse 6, So King Joram marched out from Samaria at that time and mobilized all Israel. It's on, wars declared... And Joram looks to raise a coalition of the willing. Who will fight with me? And so verse 7 continues. Then he sent a message to King Jehoshaphat of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Immediately, uh, the narrative gives the king uh, of Judah's reply. He says, I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then immediately they they turn to military tactics and planning, verse 8. Then he asked, which route should we take? Joram replied, the route of the wilderness of Edom. So Jehoshaphat, he puts himself in the hands of Joram, relying on him to determine the military strategy. 
Verse 9 continues, so the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom set out. They're off. Edom would have been another a vassal state, and so they join the, the coalition, the three kings. They make plans, they set out, uh, and spoiler alert, they do run into trouble. Immediately, verse 9 continues, after they traveled their indirect route for seven days, they had no water for the army or their animals. The Judean king moves straight from agreement to planning to action and walks straight into disaster. And so it's kind of at those moments you ask, why? How did this happen? What happened here? And the passage leaves us uh, with no doubt. Firstly, it's because they didn't seek God's counsel. And secondly, it's because Joram fears the idols and not God. He's got a foot in each camp. And, And we'll look at the first reason now and the second reason as the story unfolds. So firstly, let's look at this. It's the fact that they didn't seek God's counsel. They move quickly. It looks good. They've got a coalition of three versus one. It should be, it should be easy. You know, they've got a great strategy. But what have they forgotten? They've forgotten God, to ask God, to seek his counsel. Uh, their military strategy was a good one. Uh, here's a slide of the route. Oh, you can't, the lines are quite annoying. Anyway, you've got Judah down the bottom and then Israel at the top. Uh, and then Edom, so there's these three, and Moab's kind of right in the middle. And you can see the desert is kind of that whole region through there. And the obvious place, of course, they'd attack straight down the middle from the top. But no, they, they take this indirect route. It's very clever. It's a great strategy. Uh, military textbooks will tell you two things about this general approach. Firstly, it's necessary. You have to try and throw your opponent off balance. You've got to try and surprise them. The second thing with this kind of approach is that it's always dangerous. High risk, high reward. Um, uh, the quintessential modern example was Hitler's advance through the Ardennes forest, uh, leading to the fall of France. It was the impenetrable forest, and, and he, he kind of ripped through there, caught them off guard, and it, it turned the whole tide of the war. But the Achilles heel of such an approach became evident as the Nazi war machine attacked uh, the Soviet Union, of course, in the summer of 1941, Again, they moved quickly to encircle, uh, but they couldn't keep up supplies to their men, and then they got stuck in a war of attrition, and then there they were in winter, and, you know, and it led to their downfall, didn't it? Uh, I don't know, you, you must have heard the stories. They were lighting fires under the tanks to try and get them warm enough to start them. It all just went terribly wrong. Well, much of life is uncertain. You try the same thing again, and you get caught out. Traps lurk at every turn. But God's children can turn to him, can bring it before him. A God's nation, that was so privileged, the Israelites, weren't they? They were his people, and they were called to bring it before God. We are called to bring it before him. Uh, And so why don't we? Why don't we seek God? Often we forget, often we don't. But why don't we, before we set out? Uh, what's really interesting in this story is that in he- Hebrew, the Old Testament does this, it repeats the same thing with a bit of a twist. And this same thing happened a few chapters ago in uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 4, where uh, an Israelite king asks Jehoshaphat, will you go to water me? It's exactly the same wording. Uh, and he says, yes, I will. But he says, he adds the line, first, please, uh, let me ask what the Lord's will is. He got it right last time. This time, he forgot that bit. And it was very important. 
<laughs> it's obvious to seek the Lord's will, isn't it? God is the guy in charge. It, it's really such a no-brainer. It was so easy, it was so obvious for God's king. And so why don't we? Do, do we just forget, like, forgetting to brush our teeth? Uh, or is it more like forgetting to pick your kids up from preschool or something? As I've, uh, I've reflected on this this week, I've reflected on my life, and uh, I think I realize that I, I don't go to God because I think it's going to be okay. I, I just go ahead, you know, well, whatever it is, I, I buy another car, I've got the money, and so I do it. Uh, or, or I book a holiday, you know, I've, I've got the time there, and so I jump on the plane. Uh, I call people, I send the email, I've got, I've got it covered. There's no need to involve God. And what's missing? Well, very, very deep down, I think it comes to the fact that we lack humility, don't we? We don't fear God as we should. Uh, As I reflected, I pulled out a bit of a classic old book now, Prayer and the Voice of God, uh, Tony Painfield Jensen, uh, and they reflect on on this difficulty of us uh, and why we don't turn to God in prayer. And they say this, the real basis of our difficulty is not intellectual, it's moral and spiritual. Uh, It's because uh, sin uh, and Satan uh, prevent us. So let me read another quote from the book. They say, prayer brings us low. It forces us to admit that we are not independent or self-sufficient. Two lies that are very dear to us. And Satan, the father of lies, wants wants us to keep believing them. He wants us to stand tall and to go it alone, not humbly kneel and express our dependence on God for everything. Look at this is the argument um, that First Peter makes. Have a, have a look; it should come up on screen. First Peter five six to eight. He says, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on Him, because He cares about you." So notice it links humility with turning to God, casting our cares on Him, and uh, it's the lie of uh, of the world, of the devil. Um, of our wealth. It's a lie that we don't need God. It's the lie of our strength that we don't need to pray to God. And we're called to cast our cares on God here because He cares about us. There's beautiful parallelism there in the verse, isn't there? Cast your cares on Him because He cares about you. Your worries cannot exhaust God's concern for you. Just let that soak in. I think some of us need to hear that, don't we? Like, what's been on your mind lately? What concerns, cares, worries, anxieties do you have? Hear Peter, he says, cast all, every single care on him because he cares about you. What a privilege. Well, back to our story. <clears throat> where it's, it's too late to turn to God, verses 9 to 14. Remember, they set out in verse 9, uh, and no sooner have they set out, they've run into trouble. Verse 9 says, they had no water for their army or their animals. Uh, and Joram blames God. You might have noticed that as we read through it. Joram blames God. Uh, it was clearly he that made the plan uh, in verse 10. But Jehoshaphat, who does follow Yahweh, realizes his mistake. And so in verse 11 says, Isn't there a prophet of God here? Let's inquire of Yahweh through him. 
So they go to Elisha, God's prophet, in verse 13. But they are no doubt surprised by Elisha's greeting. He says, uh, However, Elisha said to King Joram of Israel, We have nothing in common. Go to the prophets of your father and mother. We have nothing in common. That's, uh, that's not really good diplomacy there, is it? That's, this guy's got a PR problem. <laughs> it's so abrupt. Where, where is this abruptness coming from? What's going on here? Uh, it continues in verse 13, where Joram again blames God, but Elisha responds saying, As the Lord of hosts live, I stand before him. If I did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not look at you. I wouldn't take notice of you. Why is he so harsh? What a contrast to how King Jehoshaphat had greeted Joram. Remember, he said, I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses, your horses. Whereas Elisha says, we have nothing in common. The story, it's forcing us to go back and reconsider how wise it was for Jehoshaphat to make this partnership with Joram. Elisha, on behalf of God, says to Joram, it's too late. Go to the prophets, go to the false gods that you still worship. Use the altars to those gods if you want help, because you have made your decision. You've tried to play the field, but I can't be played, and so now it's too late. And this is the lesson all through Scripture. There is a point where it's too late to turn to God. He won't be shared. He won't be put in the same basket as these other gods, which vie for our attention. If you try to have both Yahweh and idols... You will only have the idols who are dead and who cannot deliver you when you're thirsty. God says, turn to me before it's too late. And so that's that's what's happening from Joram's perspective. But from Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah's perspective, it's a different kind of lesson, isn't it? It's one about uh, not being naive about who we partner with. I think we're led to this, especially when you um, look at some of the passages in the New Testament, Uh, Second Chronicles, uh, so a little bit of background, you, you know there's the book of Chronicles, you've got Kings and Chronicles, and they kind of are both histories and they give different details. In uh, Second Chronicles chapter 20, uh, King Joram is, uh, uh, he, he's, he's, it's, it kind of sums up his life, it says he was good, he followed Yahweh as a good king, uh, but then he's kind of reprimanded for making alliances with Israel. And so when you kind of know that, I think it's right to read in Kings here. You're like, no, he shouldn't have. This was a mistake. He, he, this is definitely something that he um, was naive about, and, and he's gone into these alliances, uh, and he shouldn't have. God's king says, uh, I am as you are. My people are your people. And look where it lands him. He, he jumps on board with the war effort, forgetting to ask God, and he's stuck with his partnership, and it doesn't end well. Because a partnership like this can't work well because one party doesn't fear God. So let's, uh, let's look at the New Testament. Look how Paul uh, says we should live in 2 Corinthians 6. It says, Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteous and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Baal, or, uh, Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? It's saying believers are mismatched with unbelievers. It's simple. (laughs) He pushes us, what agreement can we have? It's only a matter of time, isn't it, until disagreement uh, comes. Because 
fear of God, it's, it's such a fundamental belief that it changes everything else. Uh, so we, you know, we might disagree about, say, our musical uh, preferences uh, or a sporting team, but, but despite that, you can have lots in common. But if we disagree about the gospel of salvation in Christ, about our need to fear God above all else, it's going to change the way we do everything, isn't it? it it's so deep. It, it's as fundamental as it gets. And so we'll never see fully eye to eye with someone that is an unbeliever. And so Paul says, what can we really have in common with unbelievers? We need to be very careful and consider the partnerships we we enter into, from romantic relationships to business partnerships, uh, sporting clubs or or schools or or, music or Netflix subscriptions. They're a kind of partnership. Lots of things in life are these kinds of partnerships, aren't they? We need to enter into something uh, very carefully and ask, is this going to have an effect on us? We shouldn't be naive like this king was. Is this something that's going to pull us in a direction away from God? Every idol has its demands and God has his. And he says we cannot serve two masters. Uh, let Let me read a bit more from that passage in 2 Corinthians. It says, And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God, as God said. I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. So look at the argument. He's saying we are the sanctuary, the church of God. God dwells in us, doesn't he? And he's saying he's not going to share us with idols. So the question is, who's in your hearts? Because if it's idols, God isn't going to be there. If it's God, idols can't be there. And so God says, come out from among them, be separate, and then he will welcome us. We need to be very careful about entering into partnerships because there's only room for one God in our heart. Uh, And a word uh, for us who are already in such partnerships with unbelievers, I know many of us are in many ways, in such a case we need to make sure that Yahweh is first in our heart and that we are not pulled off his course. We need to look to minister to the people that we are in partnerships with, that they may come to serve the living God along with us. Well, uh, final section now. Let's get back to our story. I've called the section Failing to Fear God. Verses 15 to 27. Let me, let me rip through it. Uh, verse 16, the Lord's word comes to Elisha, who says, This is what the Lord says, Dig ditch after ditch in this wadi. Wadi is just a valley. For the Lord says, You will not see wind or rain, but the wadi will be filled with water, and you will drink. You and your cattle and your animals, this is easy for the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. See, God gives a plan saying that he's going to hand Moab over to them. Uh, if they carry it out, this will be theirs. They came to God asking for water, for God will also provide victory. It's easy, it says. It's easy in the Lord's sight. <laughs> God is a God who gives beyond our expectations, beyond our wildest dreams to those who truly look to him. Well, the Moabites come out to fight, of course, Uh, And they see that the the valley um, has got water. It looks like blood to them. Verse 23 continues. This is blood, they exclaimed. The kings have clashed swords and killed each other. So spoiled to Moab. 
You might say, how could they fall for that? Uh, and the reason is uh, that Second um, Chronicles 20 has uh, a story where the same thing happened. A little bit earlier, the Moabites formed a coalition with some other kings, and they went out to battle, and then they all turned on each other and killed each other. And so they come up to the Israelite camp, and they see what they think is blood, and they're like, oh, same thing's happened. This is a very good move by God. I think, I think this was clever. So, of course, they rush in, uh, and they're easily beaten by the very much still alive Israelite coalition. So they push forward, and it's down to, uh, you know, one last city. Now, the Israelites kind of uh, fight back. They take all the cities. It's down to one final city at the end of verse 25. Uh, They lay siege to it, and the king of Moab can see he's about to be overrun. And so when there's nothing else that he could do, he does the unthinkable. He sacrifices his son on the city wall to his false god. Verse 27 says so he took his firstborn son who was to become king in his place and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall great wrath was upon the israelites and they withdrew from him and returned to their land this is so shocking the king sacrifices his son for all to see it's sickening And what's incredible is that it it turns the tide of the war. The Israelites withdraw. The Moabites keep their city. They're no longer a vassal state of Israel. And that's how the story ends. And what's going on? The child sacrifice works. But how could that be? Well, uh, let's let's go through it together. Let me give you uh, some theology, uh, some background, some theology, and then some application. So some background. Well, child sacrifice, that was a thing that these... Uh, pagan nations did, and God, God hated it. Uh, and the Moabite god Chemosh, he he required uh, he, uh, child sacrifice for such things. First King even speaks about the detestable god of Chemosh uh, with his child sacrifice. God hated it. He hated that practice. Uh, and Joram, remember, had failed to remove these altars. So th- there are there are altars to Chemosh in Israel while this is all happening. Can you imagine that? Imagine there he is offering sacrifices to the altar of God and then to the altar of Chemosh. Uh, and now let me give you some theology. Uh, God is not like these gods. Imagine, imagine we put in the same basket as a God who demands the sacrifice of the unwilling, defenseless, dependent children. God isn't going to share his sanctuary with Chemosh or any idol. Uh, And yet this is the only real way uh, to appease a false god. Uh, You need to bribe it. False gods always take bribery or payment because false gods behave like the people that make them. You know, think of the gospel by contrast where God provides uh, the sacrifice, not the worshipper, where God sacrifices himself. That's the lesson uh, with uh, with Abraham and his son Isaac and, and and Jesus, the son. Yahweh is totally different to these pagan gods. He, he offers grace, true forgiveness. You don't bribe God for his loyalty. He offers grace. He saves and then says, now live for me. Stop living for idols. Serve me in the name of Jesus who served you. And so this is what, uh, this is what God offered Joram in the war. He said, if you only trust me, if you only do as I say, I'll deliver Moab to you. 
And yet the story ends with Moab winning. So how does it all go wrong? Uh, Well, in the context, using our theology, I think it makes most sense to say that the wrath resulting from the the child's sacrifice uh, wasn't from the false god, but was from the people themselves. Uh, And the Hebrew word for wrath or fury here uh, leads you in that direction as well. So the wrath, it was from the Moabite soldiers who fought harder, invigorated to fight by the sacrifice, and it was uh, by the fear. The Israelites feared this god, Chemosh, um, who was still in their land. They hadn't got rid of this false god, so they feared him, and they feared the effect of this god. Remember I said that uh, this was the second great lesson of this chapter? Uh, What happens when you have a foot in each camp and don't fear God? This is what happens. You fall prey to false gods. The northern kingdom and the the Edomite armies, two-thirds of the coalition, they feared this this god of Chemosh, who had now been paid the ultimate bribe. And so this is the application. If you fear God, he will deliver you. If you fear idols, you'll be condemned to their futility serving them. Uh, I'm reminded here of, uh, um, I had to look this up, I heard about it years ago, of the death stick. Uh, a lot of traditional cultures worldwide, Aboriginals included, uh, they've got a thing called like a death stick or a bone, and the magic man in the culture, um, he'll utter a curse and they'll point the stick at someone uh, and they curse them to death. Um, as an aside, you'll notice I've cropped this picture uh, just for modesty reasons. You can thank me later. But uh, anyway, there's this incredible, it's this amazing thing, um, this death stick. Uh, and there are medical journals uh, that talk about uh, people coming in uh, to a hospital. There was a case up in Darwin, and the doctors are looking at this guy, and he had this, this death stick curse put on him. And, and the doctors are like, you know, they've got him hooked up with all the machines, and they're watching him die. Uh, from fear, because he he believes in this curse. Um, There's nothing they can do for him. And and it's an effective curse because they believe in in the false power. And I say this because this is how idols and false gods work. They have power over us when we believe, when we we fear in them. It, It doesn't matter what it is. If we idolize money will be driven in fear to devote our lives to it. If we idolize success or popularity, uh, we'll have, uh, these things will have power over us. We will not be able to escape their curse. But Jesus offers us freedom. He says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. If we fear God above all else, we will be set free. He will deliver us from our enemies. And so that's it. That's our passage. <laughs> Where it reminds us today uh, not to set out without God. Always turn to Him in prayer. Because uh, we need to fear Him above all else. Our humility will drive us to Him. And we see that you can't balance God with other gods. If you, if you believe in the power of idols, God will have nothing to do with you. He won't be shared with these detestable pagan gods. And so live with Christ so that it is no longer us who lives, but Christ in us. Live by faith in the name of the one who gave himself for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, may we fear you above all else. May we seek your counsel in all things. 
And by the power that saves us, may you lead us that we may live for you. In his name we pray. Amen.